Part Six of The Intrusion of Jimmy by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Intrusion of Jimmy, Chapter Sixteen, A Marriage Arranged. Neither Molly nor her father had moved or spoken while Jimmy was covering the short strip of turf that ended at the stone steps of the house. McEckern stood looking down at her in grim silence. His great body against the dark mass of the castle wall seemed larger than ever in the uncertain light. To Molly there was something sinister and menacing in his attitude. She found herself longing that Jimmy would come back. She was frightened. Why, she could not have said. It was as if some instinct told her that a crisis in her affairs had been reached and that she needed him. For the first time in her life she felt nervous in her father's company. Ever since she was a child she had been accustomed to look upon him as her protector, but now she was afraid. "'Father!' she cried. "'What are you doing out here?' His voice was tense and strained. I came out because I wanted to think, father dear." She thought she knew his moods, but this was one that she had never seen. It frightened her. "'Why did he come out here?' "'Mr. Pitt, he brought me a rap.' "'What was he saying to you?' The rain of questions gave Molly a sensation of being battered. She felt dazed and a little mutinous. What had she done that she should be assailed like this? He was saying nothing, she said rather shortly. Nothing? What do you mean? What was he saying? Tell me. Molly's voice shook as she replied. He was saying nothing, she repeated. Do you think I'm not telling you the truth, father? He had not spoken a word for ever so long. We just walked up and down. I was thinking, and I suppose he was too. At any rate, he said nothing. I... I think you might believe me." She began to cry quietly. Her father had never been like this before. It hurt her. McKeckern's manner changed in a flash. In the shock of finding Jimmy and Molly together on the terrace, he had forgotten himself. He had reason to be suspicious. Sir Thomas Blunt, from whom he had just parted, had told him a certain piece of news which had disturbed him. The discovery of Jimmy with Molly had lent an added significance to that piece of news. He saw that he had been rough. In a moment he was by her side, his great arm round her shoulder, petting and comforting her as he had done when she was a child. He believed her word without question, and his relief made him very tender. Gradually the sob ceased. She leaned against his arm. "'I'm tired, father,' she whispered. "'Poor little girl. We'll sit down.' There was a seat at the end of the terrace. McCarran picked Molly up as if she had been a baby and carried her to it. She gave a little cry. "'I didn't mean I was too tired to walk,' she said, laughing tremulously. "'How strong you are, father!' If I was naughty, you could take me up and shake me till I was good, couldn't you?" "'Of course, and send you to bed, too. So you be careful, young woman.' He lowered her to the seat. Molly drew the cloak closer round her and shivered. "'Cold, dear?' "'No.' "'You shivered?' "'It was nothing.' 
Yes, it was, she went on quickly. It was. Father, will you promise me something? Of course. What? Don't ever be angry with me like that again, will you? I couldn't bear it. Really, I couldn't. I know it's stupid of me, but it hurt. You don't know how it hurt. But, my dear, oh, I know it's stupid, but, but, my darling, it wasn't so. I was angry, but it wasn't with you. With, were you angry with Mr. Pitt? McEachern saw that he had traveled too far. He had intended that Jimmy's existence should be forgotten for the time being. He had other things to discuss, but it was too late now. He must go forward. "'I didn't like to see you out here alone with Mr. Pitt, dear,' he said. "'I was afraid.' He saw that he must go still further forward. It was more than awkward. He wished to hint at the undesirability of an entanglement with Jimmy without admitting the possibility of it. Not being a man of nimble brain, he found this somewhat beyond his powers. "'I don't like him,' he said briefly. "'He's crooked.' Molly's eyes opened wide. The color had gone from her face. "'Crooked, father?' McEachern perceived that he had traveled very much too far, almost to disaster. He longed to denounce Jimmy, but he was gagged. If Molly were to ask the question, that Jimmy had asked in the bedroom, that fatal, unanswerable question, the price was too great to pay. He spoke cautiously, vaguely, feeling his way. "'I couldn't explain it to you, my dear. You wouldn't understand. You must remember, my dear, that out in New York I was in a position to know a great many queer characters. Crooks, Molly. I was working among them.' But, father, that night at our house you didn't know Mr. Pitt. He had to tell you his name." "'I didn't know him then,' said her father slowly. "'But—but—' he paused. "'But I made inquiries,' he concluded with a rush, and found out things." He permitted himself a long, silent breath of relief. He saw his way now. Inquiries said Molly. Why? Why? Why did you suspect him? A moment earlier the question might have confused McEachern, but not now. He was equal to it. He took it in his stride. It's hard to say, my dear. A man who has had as much to do with crooks as I have recognizes them when he sees them. Do you think Mr. Pitt looked—looked like that? Her voice was very small. There was a drawn, pinched expression on her face. She was paler than ever. He could not divine her thoughts. He could not know what his words had done, how they had shown her in a flash what Jimmy was to her, and lighted her mind like a flame, revealing the secret hidden there. She knew now. The feeling of comradeship, the instinctive trust, the sense of dependence. They no longer perplexed her. They were signs which she could read. And he was crooked. McEachern proceeded. Belief made him buoyant. I did, my dear. I can read them like a book. I've met scores of his sort. Broadway is full of them. Good clothes and a pleasant manner don't make a man honest. 
I've run up against a mighty high-toned bunch of crooks in my day. It's a long time since I gave up thinking that it was only the ones with the low foreheads and the thick ears that needed watching. It's the innocent willies, who look as if all they could do was lead to the cotillion. This man Pitt's one of them. I'm not guessing, mind you. I know. I know his line, and all about him. I'm watching him. He's here on some game. How did he get here? Why, he scraped acquaintance with Lord Drever in a London restaurant. It's the commonest trick on the list. If I hadn't happened to be here when he came, I suppose he'd have made his haul by now. Why, he came all prepared for it. Have you seen an ugly, grinning, red-headed scoundrel hanging about the place? His valet. So he says, valet. Do you know who that is? That's one of the most notorious yeggmen on the other side. There isn't a policeman in New York who doesn't know Spike Mullins. Even if I knew nothing of this pit, that would be enough. What's an innocent man going round the country with Spike Mullins for, unless they're standing in together at some game? That's who Mr. Pitt is, my dear. And that's why, maybe, I seemed a little put out when I came upon you and him out here alone together. See as little of him as you can. In a large party like this, it won't be difficult to avoid him." Molly sat staring out across the garden. At first every word had been a stab. Several times she had been on the point of crying out that she could bear it no longer. But gradually a numbness succeeded the pain. She found herself listening apathetically. McEachern talked on. He left the subject of Jimmy, comfortably conscious that, even if there had ever existed in Molly's heart any budding feeling of the kind he had suspected, it must now be dead. He steered the conversation away until it ran easily among commonplaces. He talked of New York, of the preparations for the theatricals. Molly answered composedly. She was still pale, and a certain listlessness in her manner might have been noticed by a more observant man than Mr. McEachern. Beyond this, there was nothing to show that her heart had been born and killed but a few minutes before. Men have the red Indian instinct, and Molly had grown to womanhood in those few minutes. Presently Lord Drever's name came up. It caused a momentary pause, and McEachern took advantage of it. It was the cue for which he had been waiting. He hesitated for a moment, for the conversation was about to enter upon a difficult phase, and he was not quite sure of himself. Then he took the plunge. "'I have just been talking to Sir Thomas, my dear,' he said. He tried to speak casually, and as a natural result infused so much meaning into his voice that Molly looked at him in surprise. McEachern coughed confusedly. Diplomacy, he concluded, was not his fort. He abandoned it in favor of directness. He was telling me that you had refused Lord Drever this evening. Yes, I did, said Molly. How did Sir Thomas know? Lord Drever told him. Molly raised her eyebrows. I shouldn't have thought it was the sort of thing he would talk about, she said. Sir Thomas is his uncle. Of course, so he is, said Molly dryly. I forgot. 
That would account for it, wouldn't it?" Mr. McEachern looked at her with some concern. There was a hard ring in her voice which he did not altogether like. His greatest admirer had never called him an intuitive man, and he was quite at a loss to see what was wrong. As a schemer, he was perhaps a little naive. He had taken it for granted that Molly was ignorant of the maneuvers which had been going on, and which had culminated that afternoon in a stammering proposal of marriage from Lord Drever in the Rose Garden. This, however, was not the case. The woman incapable of seeing through the machinations of two men in the mental caliber of Sir Thomas Blunt and Mr. McEachern has yet to be born. For some considerable time Molly had been alive to the well-meant plottings of that worthy pair, and had derived little pleasure from the fact. It may be that woman loves to be pursued, but she does not love to be pursued by a crowd." Mr. McEachern cleared his throat and began again. "'You shouldn't decide a question like that too hastily, my dear.' "'I didn't. Not too hastily for Lord Drever, at any rate, poor dear." "'It was in your power,' said Mr. McEachern portentously, "'to make a man happy.' "'I did,' said Molly bitterly. "'You should have seen his face light up. He could hardly believe it was true for a moment, and then it came home to him, and I thought he would have fallen on my neck. He did his very best to look heartbroken, out of politeness, but it was no good. He whistled most of the way back to the house, all flat, but very cheerfully. "'My dear, what do you mean?' Molly had made the discovery earlier in their conversation that her father had moods whose existence she had not expected. It was his turn now to make a similar discovery regarding herself. "'I mean nothing, father,' she said. "'I'm just telling you what happened.' He came to me looking like a dog that's going to be washed. Why, of course. He was nervous, my dear. Of course. He couldn't know that I was going to refuse him." She was breathing quickly. He started to speak, but she went on, looking straight before her. Her face was very white in the moonlight. He took me into the rose garden. Was that Sir Thomas's idea? There couldn't have been a better setting, I'm sure. The roses looked lovely. Presently I heard him gulp, and I was so sorry for him. I would have refused him then, and put him out of his misery, only I couldn't very well till he had proposed, could I? So I turned my back and sniffed at a rose. And then he shut his eyes—I couldn't see him, but I know he shut his eyes—and began to say his lesson. Molly! She laughed hysterically. He did! He said his lesson! He gabbled it! When he had got as far as, Well, don't you know what I mean is, that's what I wanted to say, you know, I turned round and soothed him. I said I didn't love him. He said, No, no, of course not. I said he had paid me a great compliment. He said, Not at all looking very anxious, poor darling, as if even then he was afraid of what might come next. But I reassured him, and he cheered up, and we walked back to the house together as happy as could be." McEachern put his hand round her shoulders. She winced, but let it stay. 
He attempted gruff conciliation. "'My dear, you've been imagining things. Of course he isn't happy. Why, I saw the young fellow—' Recollecting that the last time he had seen the young fellow, shortly after dinner, the young fellow had been occupied in juggling, with every appearance of mental peace, two billiard-balls and a box of matches. He broke off abruptly. Molly looked at him. Father, my dear, why do you want me to marry Lord Drever? He met the attack stoutly. I think he's a fine young fellow, he said, avoiding her eyes. He's quite nice, said Molly quietly. McEckern had been trying not to say it. He did not wish to say it. If it could have been hinted at, he would have done it but he was not good at hinting. A lifetime passed in surroundings where the subtlest hint is a drive in the ribs with a truncheon does not leave a man adept at the art. He had to be blunt or silent. "'He's the Earl of Drever, my dear.' He rushed on, desperately anxious to cover the nakedness of the statement in a comfortable garment of words. "'Why, you see you're young, Molly. It's only natural you shouldn't look on these things sensibly. You expect too much of a man. You expect this fellow to be like the heroes of the novels you read. When you've lived a little longer, my dear, you'll see that there's nothing in it. It isn't the hero of the novel you want to marry. It's the man who make you a good husband." This remark struck Mr. McCarkern as so pithy and profound that he repeated it. He went on. Molly was sitting quite still, looking into the shrubbery. He assumed she was listening, but whether she was or not, he must go on talking. The situation was difficult. Silence would make it more difficult. "'Now look at Lord Drever,' he said. "'There's a young man with one of the oldest titles in England. He could go anywhere and do what he liked.' and be excused for whatever he did because of his name. But he doesn't. He's got the right stuff in him. He doesn't go racketing around. His uncle doesn't allow him enough pocket-money," said Molly with a jarring little laugh. Perhaps that's why. There was a pause. McKeckern required a few moments in which to marshal his arguments once more. He had been thrown out of his stride. Molly turned to him. The hardness had gone from her face. She looked up at him wistfully. "'Father, dear, listen,' she said. "'We always used to understand each other so well.' He patted her shoulder affectionately. "'You can't mean what you say. You know I don't love Lord Drever. You know he's only a boy. Don't you want me to marry a man?' "'I love this old place.' But surely you can't think that it can really matter in a thing like this. You don't really mean that about the hero of the novel. I'm not stupid like that. I only want—oh, I can't put it into words, but don't you see?" Her eyes were fixed appealingly on him. It only needed a word from him, perhaps not even a word, to close the gulf that had opened between them. He missed the chance. He had had time to think, and his arguments were ready again. 
With stolid good humor, he marched along the line he had mapped out. He was kindly and shrewd and practical, and the gulf gaped wider with every word. "'You mustn't be rash, my dear. You mustn't act without thinking in these things. Lord Drever is only a boy, as you say, but he will grow. You say you don't love him? Nonsense! You like him. You would go on liking him more and more. And why? Because you could make what you pleased of him. You've got character, my dear. With a girl like you to look after him, he would go a long way, a very long way. It's all there. It only wants bringing out. And think of it, Molly, Countess of Drever. There's hardly a better title in England. It would make me very happy, my dear. It's been my one hope all these years to see you in the place where you ought to be. And now the chance has come. Molly, dear, don't throw it away." She leaned back with closed eyes. A wave of exhaustion had swept over her. She listened in a dull dream. She felt beaten. They were too strong for her, there were too many of them. What did it matter? Why not give in and end it all and win peace? That was all she wanted, peace now. What did it all matter? "'Very well, father,' she said listlessly. McEachern stopped short. "'You'll do it, dear?' he cried. "'You will?' "'Very well, father.' He stooped and kissed her. "'My own dear little girl,' he said. She got up. "'I'm rather tired, father,' she said. "'I think I'll go in.' Two minutes later Mr. McEachern was in Sir Thomas Blunt's study. Five minutes later Sir Thomas pressed the bell. Saunders appeared. "'Tell his lordship,' said Sir Thomas, "'that I wish to see him in a moment. He's in the billiard-room, I think.'" Chapter 17 Jimmy Remembers Something The game between Hargate and Lord Drever was still in progress when Jimmy returned to the billiard-room. A glance at the board showed that the score was seventy-sixty-nine in favor of Spot. "'Good game,' said Jimmy. "'Who's Spot?' "'I am,' said his lordship, missing an easy cannon. For some reason he appeared in high spirits. "'Hargate's been going great guns. I was eleven ahead a moment ago, but he made a break of twelve. Lord Drever belonged to the class of billiard players to whom a double-figure break is a thing to be noted and greeted with respect. Fluky, muttered the silent Hargate deprecatingly. This was a long speech for him. Since their meeting at Paddington Station, Jimmy had seldom heard him utter anything beyond a monosyllable. Not a bit of it, dear old son, said Lord Drever handsomely. You're coming on like a two-year-old. I shan't be able to give you twenty in a hundred much longer." He went to a side-table and mixed himself a whiskey-and-soda, singing a brief extract from musical comedy as he did so. There could be no shadow of doubt that he was finding life good. For the past few days, and particularly that afternoon, he had been rather noticeably ill at ease. Jimmy had seen him hanging about the terrace at half-past five, and had thought that he looked like a mute at a funeral. But now, only a few hours later, 
he was beaming on the world and chirping like a bird. The game moved jerkily along. Jimmy took a seat and watched. The score mounted slowly. Lord Drever was bad, but Hargate was worse. At length, in the eighties, his lordship struck a brilliant vein. When he had finished his break, his score was ninety-five. Hargate, who had profited by a series of misses on his opponent's part, had reached ninety-six. "'This is shortening my life,' said Jimmy, leaning forward. The balls had been left in an ideal position. Even Hargate could not fail to make a cannon. He made it. A close finish to even the worst game is exciting. Jimmy leaned still further forward to watch the next stroke. It looked as if Hargate would have to wait for his victory. A good player could have made a cannon as the balls lay, but not Hargate. They were almost in a straight line, with white in the center. Hargate swore under his breath. There was nothing to be done. He struck carelessly at white. White rolled against red, seemed to hang for a moment, and shot straight back against the spot. The game was over. "'Great Scott! What a fluke!' cried the silent one, becoming quite garrulous at the miracle. A quiet grin spread itself slowly across Jimmy's face. He had remembered what he had been trying to remember for over a week. At this moment the door opened and Saunders appeared. "'Sir Thomas would like to see your lordship in his study,' he said. "'Eh? What does he want?' "'Sir Thomas did not confide in me, your lordship.' "'Eh? What? Oh, no. Well, see you later, you men.' He rested his cue against the table and put on his coat. Jimmy followed him out of the door, which he shut behind him. "'One second, Drever, he said. "'Eh? Hello. What's up?' "'Any money on that game?' asked Jimmy. "'Why, yes, by Jove, now you mention it, there was. An even fiver. And, um, by the way, old man, the fact is, just for the moment, I'm frightfully—you haven't such a thing as a fiver anywhere about, have you?—the fact is, my dear fellow, of course, I'll square up with him now, shall I?' "'Fearfully obliged, if you would. Thanks, old man. Pay it to-morrow.' "'No hurry,' said Jimmy. Plenty more in the old oak chest." He went back to the room. Hargate was practicing cannons. He was on the point of making a stroke when Jimmy opened the door. "'Care for a game?' asked Hargate. "'Not just at the present,' said Jimmy. Hargate attempted his cannon and failed badly. Jimmy smiled. "'Not such a good shot as the last,' he said. "'No.' "'Fine shot, that other.' Fluke. I wonder. Jimmy lighted a cigarette. Do you know New York at all? he asked. Been there. Ever been in the Strollers Club? Hargate turned his back, but Jimmy had seen his face and was satisfied. Don't know it, said Hargate. Great place, said Jimmy. Mostly actors and writers and so on. The only drawback is that some of them pick up queer friends. Hargate did not reply. He did not seem interested. "'Yes,' went on Jimmy. "'For instance, a pal of mine, an actor named Mifflin, introduced a man a year ago as a member's guest for a fortnight, and this man rooked the fellows of I don't know how much at billiards. The old game, you know. 
nursing his man right up to the end and then finishing with a burst. Of course, when that happens once or twice, it may be an accident, but when a man who poses as a novice always manages by a really brilliant shot." Hargate turned round. "'They fired this fellow out,' said Jimmy. "'Look here.' "'Yes?' "'What do you mean?' "'It's a dull yarn,' said Jimmy apologetically. "'I've been boring you. By the way, Dreever asked me to square up with you for that game, in case he shouldn't be back. Here you are." He held out an empty hand. "'Got it?' "'What are you going to do?' demanded Hargate. "'What am I going to do?' queried Jimmy. "'You know what I mean. If you'll keep your mouth shut and stand in, it's halves. Is that what you're after?' Jimmy was delighted. He knew that by rights the proposal should have brought him from his seat, with stern set face, to wreak vengeance for the insult. But on such occasions he was apt to ignore the conventions. His impulse, when he met a man whose code of behavior was not the ordinary code, was to chat with him and extract his point of view. He felt as little animus against Hargate as he had felt against Spike on the occasion of their first meeting. "'Do you make much of this sort of game?' he asked. Hargate was relieved. This was businesslike. "'Pots,' he said with some enthusiasm. "'Pots! I tell you, if you'll stand in—bit risky, isn't it? Not a bit of it. An occasional accident. I suppose you'd call me one.' Hargate grinned. "'It must be pretty tough work,' said Jimmy you must have to use a tremendous lot of self-restraint." Hargate sighed. "'That's the worst of it,' he admitted, the having to seem a mug at the game. I've been patronized sometimes by young fools who thought they were teaching me, until I nearly forgot myself and showed them what real billiards was." "'There's always some drawback to the learned professions,' said Jimmy. "'But there's a heap to make up for it in this one.' said Hargate. Well, look here, is it a deal? You'll stand in." Jimmy shook his head. "'I guess not,' he said. "'It's good of you, but commercial speculation never was in my line. I'm afraid you must count me out of this.' "'What? You're going to tell?' "'No,' said Jimmy, "'I'm not. I'm not a vigilance committee. I won't tell a soul.' Why, then, began Hargate, relieved, unless, of course, Jimmy went on, you play billiards again while you're here. Hargate stared. But, damn it, man, if I don't, what's the good? Look here, what am I to do if they ask me to play? Give your wrist as an excuse. My wrist? Yes, you sprained it tomorrow after breakfast. It was bad luck. I wonder how you came to do it. You didn't sprain it much, just enough to stop you playing billiards." Hargate reflected. "'Understand?' said Jimmy. "'Oh, very well,' said Hargate sullenly. "'But,' he burst out, "'if I ever get a chance to get even with you—' "'You won't,' said Jimmy. "'Dismiss the rosy dream. Get even. You don't know me. There's not a flaw in my armor. I'm a sort of modern edition of the stainless knight. 
Tennyson drew Galahad from me. I move through life with almost a sickening absence of sin. But hush! We are observed. At least we shall be in another minute. Somebody is coming down the passage. You do understand, don't you? Sprained wrist is the watchword." The handle turned. It was Lord Drever back again from his interview. "'Hello, Drever,' said Jimmy. "'We've missed you. Hargate has been doing his best to amuse me with acrobatic tricks. But you're too reckless, Hargate, old man. Mark my words, one of these days you'll be spraining your wrist. You should be careful.' "'What? Going? Good night.' Pleasant fellow, Hargate," he added, as the footsteps retreated down the passage. "'Well, my lad, what's the matter with you? You look depressed.' Lord Drever flung himself to the lounge and groaned hollowly. "'Damn, damn, damn!' he observed. His glassy eye met Jimmy's and wandered away again. "'What on earth's the matter?' demanded Jimmy. You go out of here caroling like a songbird, and you come back moaning like a lost soul. What's happened?" "'Give me a brandy and soda, pit old man. There's a good chap. I'm in a fearful hole.' "'Why? What's the matter?' "'I'm engaged,' groaned his lordship. "'Engaged? I wish you'd explain. What on earth's wrong with you? Don't you want to be engaged? What's your—' He broke off as a sudden, awful suspicion dawned upon him. "'Who is she?' he cried. He gripped the stricken peer's shoulder and shook it savagely. Unfortunately, he selected the precise moment when the latter was in the act of calming his quivering nerve-centers with a gulp of brandy and soda, and for the space of some two minutes it seemed as if the engagement would be broken off by the premature extinction of the Drever line. A long and painful fit of coughing, however, ended with his lordship still alive and on the road to recovery. He eyed Jimmy reproachfully, but Jimmy was in no mood for apologies. "'Who is she?' he kept demanding. "'What's her name?' "'Might have killed me,' grumbled the convalescent. "'Who is she?' "'What? Why, Miss McKechn?' Jimmy had known what the answer would be but it was scarcely less of a shock for that reason. "'Miss McKechern?' he echoed. Lord Drever nodded a somber nod. "'You're engaged to her?' Another somber nod. "'I don't believe it,' said Jimmy. "'I wish I didn't,' said his lordship wistfully, ignoring the slight rudeness of the remark. "'But worse luck, it's true.' For the first time since the disclosure of the name, Jimmy's attention was directed to the remarkable demeanor of his successful rival. "'You don't seem over-pleased,' he said. "'Pleased? Have a fiver each way on pleased. No, I'm not exactly leaping with joy.' "'Then what the devil is it all about? What do you mean? What's the idea? If you don't want to marry Miss McEachern, why did you propose to her?' Lord Drever closed his eyes. "'Dear old boy, don't. It's my uncle.' "'Your uncle? Didn't I explain it all to you, about him wanting me to marry? You know, I told you the whole thing.' Jimmy stared in silence. "'Do you mean to say,' he said slowly—he stopped. 
It was a profanation to put the thing into words. What, old man? Jimmy gulped. Do you mean to say you want to marry Miss McKeckern simply because she has money, he said? It was not the first time that he had heard of a case of a British peer marrying for such a reason, but it was the first time that the thing had filled him with horror. In some circumstances, things come home more forcibly to us. "'It's not me, old man,' murmured his lordship. "'It's my uncle.' "'Your uncle? Good God!' Jimmy clenched his hands despairingly. Do you mean to say that you let your uncle order you about in a thing like this? Do you mean to say you're such a, such a, such a, gelatin, backboneless worm?" "'Old man, I say,' protested his lordship, wounded. "'I'd call you a wretched knock-kneed skunk, only I don't want to be fulsome. I hate flattering a man to his face.' Lord Drever, deeply pained, half rose from his seat. Don't get up, urged Jimmy smoothly. I couldn't trust myself. His lordship subsided hastily. He was feeling alarmed. He had never seen this side of Jimmy's character. At first he had been merely aggrieved and disappointed. He had expected sympathy. Now the matter had become more serious. Jimmy was pacing the room like a young and hungry tiger. At present, it was true, there was a billiard-table between them, but his lordship felt that he could have done with good stout bars. He nestled in his seat with the earnest concentration of a limpet on a rock. It would be deuced bad form, of course, for Jimmy to assault his host, but could Jimmy be trusted to remember the niceties of etiquette? "'Why the devil she accepted you, I can't think,' said Jimmy, half to himself stopping suddenly and glaring across the table. Lord Drever felt relieved. This was not polite, perhaps, but at least it was not violent. "'That's what beats me too, old man,' he said. "'Between you and me, it's jolly rum business. This afternoon—what about this afternoon? Why, she wouldn't have me at any price!' "'You asked her this afternoon?' Yes, and it was all right then. She refused me like a bird. Wouldn't hear of it. Came damn near laughing in my face. And then tonight, he went on, his voice squeaky at the thought of his wrongs, my uncle sends for me and says she's changed her mind and is waiting for me in the morning room. I go there and she tells me in about three words that she's been thinking it over and that the whole fearful thing is on again. I call it jolly rough on a chap. I felt such a frightful ass, you know. I didn't know what to do, whether to kiss her, I mean." Jimmy snorted violently. "'Eh?' said his lordship, blankly. "'Go on,' said Jimmy, between his teeth. I felt a fearful fool, you know. I just said, right ho, or something, dash it if I know what I did say, and legged it. It's a jolly rum business, the whole thing. It isn't as if she wanted me. I could see that with half an eye. She doesn't care hang for me. It's my belief, old man, he said solemnly, that she's been badgered into it. I believe my uncle's been at her. Jimmy laughed shortly. 
My dear man, you seem to think your uncle's persuasive influence is universal. I guess it's confined to you." Well, anyhow, I believe that's what's happened. What do you say? Why say anything? There doesn't seem to be much need. He poured some brandy into a glass and added a little soda. You take it pretty stiff, observed his lordship, with a touch of envy. On occasion, said Jimmy, emptying the glass. Chapter 18 The Lochinvar Method as Jimmy sat smoking a last cigarette in his bedroom before going to bed that night, Spike Mullins came in. Jimmy had been thinking things over. He was one of those men who are at their best in a losing game. Imminent disaster always had the effect of keying him up and putting an edge on his mind. The news he had heard that night had left him with undiminished determination, but conscious that a change of method would be needed. He must stake all on a single throw now. Young Lochinvar rather than Romeo must be his model. He declined to believe himself incapable of getting anything that he wanted as badly as he wanted Molly. He also declined to believe that she was really attached to Lord Drever. He suspected the hand of McKechern in the affair, though the suspicion did not clear up the mystery by any means. Molly was a girl of character not a feminine counterpart of his lordship, content meekly to do what she was told in a matter of this kind. The whole thing puzzled him. "'Well, Spike,' he said. He was not too pleased at the interruption. He was thinking, and he wanted to be alone. Something appeared to have disturbed Spike. His bearing was excited. "'Say, boss, guess what? You know that guy that come this afternoon?' The guy from the village that came with old man McKechn? Gaylor, said Jimmy, what about him? There had been an addition to the guests at the castle that afternoon. Mr. McKechn, walking in the village, had happened upon an old New York acquaintance of his, who, touring England, had reached Drever and was anxious to see the historic castle. Mr. McKechn had brought him thither, introduced him to Sir Thomas, and now Mr. Samuel Gaylor was occupying a room on the same floor as Jimmy's. He had appeared at dinner that night, a short, wooden-faced man, with no more conversation than Hargate. Jimmy had paid little attention to the newcomer. "'What about him?' he said. "'He's a sleuth, boss.' "'A what?' "'A sleuth.' "'A detective? That's right, a fly-cop.' "'What makes you think that?' Think? Why, I can tell them by their eyes and their feet, and the whole of them. I could pick out a fly cop from a bunch of a thousand. He's sure enough slewed all right, all right. I seen him rubber in at you's, boss. At me? Why at me? Why, of course. I see now. Our friend McKechn has got him in to spy on us. That's right, boss. Of course, you may be mistaken. Not me, boss. And say, he ain't the only one. What? More detectives? They'll have to put up house-full boards at this rate. Who's the other? A mug what's down in the Soivent's hall. I wasn't so sure of him at foist, but now I'm on to his curves. He's a slewed all right. He's valley to Sir Thomas, this second mug is. But he ain't no valley. 
he's come to see no one don't get busy with the jewels. Say, what do you think of them jewels, boss? Finest I ever saw. Yes, that's right. A hundred thousand plunks they set him back. They're the limit, ain't they? Say, won't you's really? Spike, I'm surprised at you. Do you know you're getting a regular Mephistopheles spike? Suppose I hadn't an iron will. What would happen? You really must select your subjects of conversation more carefully. You're bad company for the likes of me." Spike shuffled despondently. "'But, boss—' Jimmy shook his head. "'It can't be done, my lad.' "'But it can, boss,' protested Spike. "'It's dead easy. I've been up to the room, and I seen the box with the jewels is kept in. Why, it's the softest ever. We could get them as easy as pulling the plug out of a bottle. Why, say, there's never been such a peach of a place for getting hold of the stuff as this house. That's right, boss. Why, look what I got this afternoon, just snooping around and not really trying to get busy at all. It was just lying about." He plunged his hand into his pocket and drew it out again. As he unclosed his fingers, Jimmy caught the gleam of precious stones. "'What the?' he gasped. Spike was looking at his treasure trove with an air of affectionate proprietorship. "'Where on earth did you get those?' asked Jimmy. "'Out of one of the rooms. They belonged to one of the Lloydies. It was the easiest old thing ever, boss. I just went in when there was nobody around, and there they was on the toybo.' I never butted into anything so soft. Spike! Yes, boss? Do you remember the room you took them from? Sure, it was the foist on the— Then listen to me for a moment, my bright boy. When we're at breakfast tomorrow, you want to go to that room and put those things back. All of them, mind you, just where you found them. Do you understand? Spike's jaw had fallen. Put them back, boss! he faltered. Every single one of them. "'Boss!' said Spike, plaintively. "'Remember, every single one of them, just where it belongs, see?' "'Very well, boss.' The dejection in his voice would have moved the sternest to pity. Gloom had enveloped Spike's spirit. The sunlight had gone out of his life. It had also gone out of the lives of a good many other people at the castle. This was mainly due to the growing shadow of the day of the theatricals. For pure discomfort, there are few things in the world that can compete with the final rehearsals of an amateur theatrical performance at a country house. Every day the atmosphere becomes more heavily charged with restlessness and depression. The producer of the piece, especially, if he be also the author of it, develops a sort of intermittent insanity. He plucks at his mustache, if he has one, at his hair, if he has not. He mutters to himself. He gives vent to occasional despairing cries. The soothing suavity that marked his demeanor in the earlier rehearsals disappears. He no longer says with a winning smile, "'Splendid, old man, splendid! Couldn't be better! But I think we'll take that over just once more, if you don't mind.' Instead, he rolls his eyes and snaps out, "'Once more, please. This'll never do. At this rate we might just as well cut out the show altogether. 
What's that? No, it won't be all right on the night. Now then, once more, and do pull yourself together this time." After this the scene is sulkily resumed, and conversation, when the parties concerned meet subsequently, is cold and strained. Matters had reached this stage at the castle. Everybody was thoroughly tired of the peace, and, but for the thought of the disappointment which, presumably, would rack the neighboring nobility and gentry, if it were not to be produced, would have resigned their places without a twinge of regret. People who had schemed to get the best and longest parts were wishing now that they had been content with first footman, or Giles a villager. "'I'll never run an amateur show again as long as I live,' confided Charteris to Jimmy, almost tearfully. "'It's not good enough. Most of them aren't word perfect yet.' "'It'll be all right.' Oh, don't say it'll be all right on the night." I wasn't going to, said Jimmy. I was going to say it'll be all right after the night. People will soon forget how badly the thing went. You're a nice, comforting sort of man, aren't you? said Charteris. Why worry? said Jimmy. If you go on like this, it'll be Westminster Abbey for you in your prime. You'll be getting brain fever. Jimmy himself was one of the few who were feeling reasonably cheerful. He was deriving a keen amusement at present from the maneuvers of Mr. Samuel Gaylor of New York, this lynx-eyed man, having been instructed by Mr. McEachern to watch Jimmy, was doing so with a thoroughness that would have roused the suspicions of a babe. If Jimmy went to the billiard-room after dinner, Mr. Gaylor was there to keep him company. If during the course of the day he had occasion to fetch a handkerchief or a cigarette-case from his room, he was sure, on emerging, to stumble upon Mr. Gaylor in the corridor. The employees of Dodson's private inquiry agency believed in earning their salaries. Occasionally, after these encounters, Jimmy would come upon Sir Thomas Blunt's valet, the other man in whom Spike's trained eye had discerned the distinguishing marks of the sleuth. He was usually somewhere round the corner at these moments, and, when collided with, apologized with great politeness. Jimmy decided that he must have come under suspicion in this case vicariously, through Spike. Spike, in the servants' hall, would, of course, stand out conspicuously enough to catch the eye of a detective on the lookout for sin among the servants, and he himself, as Spike's employer, had been marked down as a possible confederate. It tickled him to think that both these giant brains should be so greatly exercised on his account. He had been watching Molly closely during these days. So far, no announcement of the engagement had been made. It struck him that possibly it was being reserved for public mention on the night of the theatricals. The whole county would be at the castle then. There could be no more fitting moment. He sounded Lord Reaver, and the latter said moodily that he was probably right. "'There's going to be a dance of sorts after the show,' he said. "'And it'll be done then, I suppose. No getting out of it after that. It'll be all over the county. Trust my uncle for that. He'll get on a table and shout it, shouldn't wonder.' and it'll be in the morning post next day, and Katie'll see it. Only two days more, oh, Lord!" 
Jimmy deduced that Katie was the Savoy girl, concerning whom his lordship had vouchsafed no particulars save that she was a ripper and hadn't a penny. Only two days. Like the Battle of Waterloo, it was going to be a close-run affair. More than ever now, he realized how much Molly meant to him, and there were moments when it seemed to him that she, too, had begun to understand. That night on the terrace seemed somehow to have changed their relationship. He thought he had got closer to her. They were in touch. Before, she had been frank, cheerful, unembarrassed. Now he noticed a constraint in her manner, a curious shyness. There was a barrier between them, but it was not the old barrier. He had ceased to be one of a crowd. But it was a race against time. The first day slipped by, a blank, and the second, till now, it was but a matter of hours. The last afternoon had come. Not even Mr. Samuel Gaylor, of Dodson's private inquiry agency, could have kept a more unflagging watch than did Jimmy during those hours. There was no rehearsal that afternoon, and the members of the company, in various stages of nervous collapse, strayed distractedly about the grounds. First one, then another, would seize upon Molly, while Jimmy, watching from afar, cursed their pertinacity. At last she wandered off alone, and Jimmy, quitting his ambush, followed. She walked in the direction of the lake. It had been a terribly hot, oppressive afternoon. There was thunder in the air. Through the trees the lake glittered invitingly. She was standing at the water's edge when Jimmy came up. Her back was turned. She was rocking with her foot a Canadian canoe that lay alongside the bank. She started as he spoke. His feet on the soft turf had made no sound. "'Can I take you out on the lake?' he said. She did not answer for a moment. She was plainly confused. "'I'm sorry,' she said. "'I—I'm waiting for Lord Drever.' Jimmy saw that she was nervous. There was tension in the air. She was looking away from him, out across the lake, and her face was flushed. "'Won't you?' he said. "'I'm sorry,' she said again. Jimmy looked over his shoulder. Down the lower terrace was approaching the long form of his lordship. He walked with pensive jerkiness, not as one hurrying to a welcome tryst. As Jimmy looked, he vanished behind the great clump of laurels that stood on the lowest terrace. In another minute he would reappear round them. Gently, but with extreme dispatch, Jimmy placed a hand on either side of Molly's waist. The next moment he had swung her off her feet and lowered her carefully to the cushions in the bow of the canoe. Then, jumping in himself with a force that made the boat rock, he loosened the mooring rope, seized the paddle, and pushed off. End of Part 6